Our Heavenly Father, Lord God, we come again now to you and we are eager to hear your word. We come to sit at your feet and to be still and to listen. And we pray, dear Lord, help us to settle our souls and to focus our hearts. Lord, arrest our attention and help us to receive from you that which is most important, your word. Because it's there that you give us yourself, your grace, your blessing, your instruction, your law. And it is for all of these that we yearn and long. And so we ask, dear Lord, open our eyes and our hearts that we may accept by faith all that we hear. And that it may change our lives and hearts and that we would be transformed into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 23. Please again give your attention. This is the word of our God. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I gave thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So for the reading of God's word. May he indeed add his blessing to it. Well, perhaps one of the greatest questions and answers ever put down to paper is the question that echoes one of man's oldest inquiries about the meaning of life. And I'm, of course, referring to the question that asks, what is the chief end of man? Most of you have heard this question and answer. Most of you know it. Uh, what is the chief end of man? Right? In modern English, that is, what is man's primary purpose? What is his highest point of being? What is his chief end? And the answer to that question, given us in the Shorter Catechism, the first question and answer, is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To glorify Him and enjoy Him Forever. And that's something of how this chapter ends, is it not? That uh, verse towards the end that says, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We will likely take our next two times together before we get to that last verse in chapter 10. But let us keep that concluding declaration in mind as we make the trip through this second half of chapter 10. Uh, Remember to to whom this letter is written as we begin uh, our look this morning. To whom this letter is written? It's written to new believers, right? New Christians. New believers coming to faith in a pagan culture, striving to leave that culture, striving to leave that pagan past behind them. And as they come across various situations, various scenarios, various confrontations between who they are and who they were, 
They send a letter to Paul to ask him his advice on what they should do in these situations, how they should act, how they should respond in these scenarios, in these confrontations. Paul's current discussion, the things that he's been talking about, began back in chapter 8. And it's there that he told them to put others above themselves and to forfeit their liberty for the sake of their neighbor, something that he ends this chapter with, something of a bookend to this discussion from 8 to 10. And Paul here in this section exhorts them with an overarching principle which is to guide them. Even in the center of a city and a culture that is filled with pagan practices and pagan temples. And that principle, of course, is to do all for the glory of God. In chapter 8, he began, you'll recall. He said, now concerning food offered to idols. And there Paul started this discussion of this issue with believers' involvement and attitude towards pagan uh, feasts. And remember what we have learned in that discussion. Remember, he's told us that idols are nothing. Why is that? Because there is no God but one. Right? Deuteronomy 6, chapter 4, the Shema, the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. The Lord your God is one. Or we can look at other places. Uh, for in Isaiah, for instance, Isaiah 43, that declare to us this same truth. <clears throat> Isaiah 43, <coughs> verse 10 that says, Before me no God was formed, nor shall, shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord. Besides me there is no Savior. Or chapter 44, verse 6, that says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me there is no God. Right? There is but one God. Idols are nothing. And this one God revealed Himself in Christ. Right, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 18 of that same chapter, he says, it is this Word that exegetes, that explains the Father. We've learned that eating or not eating meat that has uh, been offered to idols, therefore does not impact their standing before God for good or for ill. But Paul does tell us that those who realize this he calls the strong. He says they, out of a love and charity for the weak, those who think that meat should not be eaten, they should abstain until the weak become strong. In other words, the strong should be willing to forego their freedom until the weak outgrow their spiritual immaturity. In pagan worship, we know that food played a key role. An animal would be sacrificed in the temple, and some of the meat would be used in the pagan worship, and the leftover meat would make its way to the market to be sold. So there was a pagan worship and ritual eating of that meat, and then there was the leftover meat to be purchased, having no religious meaning or significance, and it would be eaten in someone's home. It is the second scenario about which the question comes to Paul. The second scenario. Should a believer purchase and or eat meat, or should they abstain? And what if you don't know the origin of that meat? In the second half of chapter 10, we have the end of the discussion about the Christian's relationship to idolatry. And Paul starts here in verse 14, giving a direct prohibition about taking part in idolatry. Again, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. You'll recall that when we come to the word therefore, 
right? You've been taught in uh, grammar uh, school, you have to ask, what is it therefore, right? The therefore, it's a conclusion indicator. And it connects what's come before it to what he's about to say after it. And Paul is saying what? He's saying, based on all that I've said, all these examples, types, you'll recall, in the Old Testament, regarding idolatry and God's wrath, based on all the warnings and God's faithfulness and his provision for you, you who belong to the age of the rock, right, to the eternal age, based on all of that, my beloved, therefore what? Flee from idolatry. Paul knew these people well, and he loved them very much. We notice back in chapter 5, verse 9, and chapter 6, verse 18, we see a similar plea, right? Remember, he says, don't associate with the sexually immoral. Flee from sexual immorality. And now he says, flee from idolatry. Right? And the call here from Paul is what? It's not simply to resist, but to flee. They and we are to cut ties with our pagan past, with our unbelieving past, with all that competes for Christ for our affections. We are to cut ties. Put it behind you, Paul says. Flee from it. And for these new converts in Corinth, and for any of us really, it was and could be a very hard thing. It's a struggle that we go through, even if we're not new believers. Sometimes these are things that we struggle with all of our lives. Paul is concerned for them. And he's concerned for those struggling to cut ties and to put paganism in the past behind them. And this plea comes right after the encouragement. Remember, what did he just say? This encouragement that God would be with them in all of their temptations that they would face. Right? Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Right? He said this, but even so, the Corinthians are to strive to avoid idolatry. Even as we, brothers and sisters, are to avoid every form of idolatry in our lives as followers of Christ. <clears throat> and it's significant, you know, the amount, the amount of time that uh, the Lord gives Regarding this, he inspired this for his church, for his people. And we should pay attention to that. Oftentimes we downplay or minimize the weight of idolatry in our lives, even all around us. In the city of Corinth, they were faced all around with pagan temples and temple prostitutes. Many guilds and gods of the guilds that they had and public baths which were just, are just what you would think of, of a modern bathhouse and all that goes with that, all the immorality. And Paul says to avoid all of it. It was everywhere. Flee from idolatry. And that's what he's told us regarding sexual immorality. And he tells us in verse 14 and then 15, he says, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And he appeals to their sensibility. Right? Their claim to wisdom, remember, was a problem for them. But he appeals to this. It's foolish to resist, he says. You must flee. And we must flee from idolatry as well. Uh, our idolatry may not be take the same form as theirs, but we must flee nevertheless. One of the biggest blights upon the church today, dear Christian, and the challenge and attack and the impropriety and the soul-degrading, soul-deadening idolatry so prevalent today is pornography. 
And it shouldn't go unmentioned that as we've seen throughout this course of what Paul's been talking about, that idolatry, eating and drinking, and sexual immorality, they're closely connected to one another. It's a function of how we're made and the distortion brought by the fall, our weakness and our fall into sin. If you talk to anyone who has struggled with this particular addiction, they will tell you it's idolatry. It's idolatry. But really all sin, all addiction is a form of idolatry. right? Raising up anything that robs your focus and love from Jesus. Anything that competes for your attention and love and time. Anything that lodges its claws into your soul and holds your affection. Anything that demands your attention and your heart. That's an idol. That's an idol. This can take many forms. Whether it's work, or gossip, or video games, or news, or politics, fornication, or alcohol, drugs, shopping, stuff, right? Money, power, even your health. The list could go on and on. And all of these things, any of these things and more, could become an idol for us in our lives. The Holy Spirit, through Paul here, commands, flee from these things. Flee from idolatry. To the Corinthians, Paul addresses quite overt idolatry because of the culture that they were in and the practices from which they came. But all Christians everywhere and at all times are to flee from idolatry, overt or, or covert idolatry. We're to have no involvement in it. We're to flee from paganism. So Paul goes on to flesh this out. And he emphasizes with a series of questions related to the Christian's relationship to the risen Lord Jesus Christ through the Supper, through the Lord's Supper. Right? Believers who participate in the Lord's Supper enjoy fellowship, right? Uh, participation, it says there. It's fellowship, communion, koinonia is the word you're probably familiar with in Greek. This fellowship with Christ himself. And therefore they cannot participate with the demonic. Right, listen to verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Right, you see their participation in the cup of blessing. It's a reference to the Lord's Supper. This is clear from what follows in this chapter and from chapter 11 that we'll get into in a number of uh, weeks from now. But Paul is referring to Jesus, his reference to this third cup of the Passover meal as his own blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the remission of sins. This was the cup over which the prayer of thanksgiving was given and consecration of the wine and to give thanks for what God has done for us and providing forgiveness for our sins. And it's pretty clear here from verse 16 that when a Christian drinks the cup, they in some way are in participation. They are participating in the blood of Christ. Right? Again, participation, sharing, communicatio in the Latin. Commun- communion is where we get the word from. Koinonia, fellowship. And through the cup, Christians are bonded together with Christ. Koinonia, fellowship, communion. And they fellowship in the participation in the blood of Christ. One of our older confessions uh, that's actually in the back of our uh, Trinity Psalter, uh, the Belgian Confession, says it wonderfully. It explains the supper like this. It says, This banquet is a spiritual table 
at which Christ communicates himself to us with all his benefits. At the table, he makes us enjoy himself as much as the merits of his suffering and death as he nourishes and strengthens and uh, comforts our poor, desolate souls by the eating of his flesh and relieves and renews them by the drinking of his blood. This partaking of the elements, the bread and the wine, they're received spiritually. Nothing is added in the text here as to how this takes place. We're only told that it does take place. And as we look at this text and we look at what it says, uh, we had to consider and ask, if the supper were merely were simply a memorial meal, and what mattered most was the extent that we feel sorry enough for our sins to partake of this meal, why does Paul bring this up in this context? Right? Why does he bring it up in the things that he's discussing? Right? Christians participating in pagan feasts and then communing in the, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Partaking in Christ's body and blood implies spiritual drinking and eating and not merely remembering. Is remembering important in the Lord's Supper? Yes, certainly it is. But that's not all that's going on there. That's not all that it's about. That's not all that's happening. And that's why Paul makes his point the way that he does. And he sets against paganism and pagan deity worship, which involved eating and drinking, participating in the uh, participation in the demon that was behind that, and participation in the Lord's Supper in the body and blood of Christ. And Paul says, how can you do both? How can you imbibe Christ and a demon? And how can a Christian truly enjoy fellowship with Jesus through his body and blood and still take part in pagan practices, engaging in fellowship with pagan deities? Listen as he goes on in verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one, for we all partake of the one bread. So many times, so many people miss the stress of unity that's connected to the supper. In the supper, where true communion, true fellowship is taking place, God's varied and diverse people, they come, they're now joined to Jesus, and they become together members of his spiritual body, that is, the church. And when they celebrate the supper, they are participating in the body and blood of Christ, and they're united to each other, and fed by Christ's body. His body being fed his body. We feed on Christ's body and blood spiritually through faith. And in the sacrament, Christ also binds his people together. This being the case, to take part in, to participate in pagan feasts, feasts is unfaithful to Christ and it's unfaithful to his body as well. Right? What does it say? We all t- uh, partake of one bread. And next we see, as we go on in verse 18, we see how Paul again refers to redemptive history to make his point. And look at verse 18. He says, Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. Right? What it says there literally is, look at Israel according to the flesh. Right? You're, there's a footnote at the bottom of your page Uh, that might uh, clarify that. That's what it actually says literally. Look at Israel according to the flesh. And that's interesting. Why would it say that? Possibly to make a distinction between the nation of Israel according to the flesh and the new Israel, the true Israel, the spiritual Israel, that is the uh, the church. 
Paul says that those who eat of the sacrifice participate, they koinonia, in the altar. And that means they, they fellowship in all for which the altar stands. The possible reference for this here is a discussion uh, that we find in Deuteronomy uh, of the tithe and the offerings going on there. Deuteronomy 14, um, I'll read for you if you'd like to go there. Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 and following. <coughs> and it says this. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil. And the firstborn of your herd and flock that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord God, your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. Right Here the people ate the sacrificed food, the tithed food. And by doing so, the people were bound together to the Lord and to each other. And then Paul restates, right, after giving this other example, uh, this other type from redemptive history, <clears throat> he restates what he said earlier in verse 9, right? In verse 20, he says, Now I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God... I do not want you to participate with demons. Right? Idols are nothing. There is but one God. But there is a demonic reality underlying idolatry. He's not denying that. He's affirming that. And even though idols are actually nothing, people who participate in idolatry, they are not engaging in neutral behavior. It's not a neutral activity. And so this occultic behavior cannot coincide with union and communion with Christ. Paul punctuates his point in the next verse, verse 21. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Paul here is echoing and he's referring to a number of possible passages from the Old Testament. I wonder how often you've read the Old Testament and you've come across the phrase, the table of the Lord or the Lord's table. There's a number of instances where that shows up. And of course, this is referring to the altar, right? And remember, the altar had a central place that was central in Israel's worship of Yahweh, their God, Yahweh, the Lord. And recall the judgment that came as a result of profaning the altar. Malachi gives us one instance of this uh, that is pretty clear. Malachi chapter 1, where we read this. <clears throat> Malachi 1, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priest who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying, to the Lord, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? 
when you offer that, uh, when you offer those that are lame and sick, is that not evil? And then verse eleven: for, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered in my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit that it, it is maybe despised. Uh, but you say, where, where, excuse me, what a weariness is this? And you snort at it, saying, the Lord of hosts, you bring what has been taken by violence or is lame and sick that you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has, uh, who has a male in his flock and vows it, and it sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. My name will be feared among the nations. Right, again, here and elsewhere, we see that the altar is polluted. We read that the altar there, it is the temple, in the temple is the Lord's table. And the unbelieving priest polluted it by offering blemished animals, impure, imperfect animals upon it. And as a result, what happens? They came under God's judgment. God's wrath came upon them. Again, another type, another example to learn from, given by the Apostle Paul. We praise God, brothers and sisters, in the new covenant that the altar has been replaced by the Lord's table. And this is the case in every Christian church across the world where Jesus gives to his people himself. And he does so through the bread and the wine if they're received by faith, believing and trusting that they are receiving Christ. From this we see that it shows us that the sacraments, especially the Lord's Supper, are to hold a central place in Christian worship. And this has been the case from apostolic times, even until today. The high point of Christian worship and the service is to be the proclamation of the word. But the terminus of the supper is the meal the meal, the communion with the Lord, the Thanksgiving and communion meal. And this is also one of the reasons why celebrating the Lord's Supper is always tied to the preaching of the Word. And it's also why it is to be observed frequently, not infrequently. And so Paul in his discussion, his answer to the Corinthians in this letter, he says it's an either-or proposition. Believers in Christ, followers of Christ, cannot be fellowshipping in both the Lord's Supper and in idle feasts. We cannot compromise, even though that seems to be the, uh, the highest good in our culture, the summa bonum in our culture. Compromise is not an option for us, dear Christian. The coexist types will have to be offended before we offend the Lord of glory, the living and the true God. Paul tells the Corinthians, When we drink the cup of the Lord, we are spiritually participating in the blood of Christ. And when a person drinks the cup of a pagan ceremony, somehow, in some sense, he or she participates in the demonic. And this is how our passage continues. In verse 22, where Paul says, Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And so he begins, he concludes his argument where he began. At the beginning of chapter 10, he cautioned the Corinthians, remember, to beware of the fate of the Israelites of old and how they ate spiritual food and drink and how they came under God's judgment. And he now cautions them again about not stirring God's wrath and judgment. God is far stronger than we are. 
We shouldn't mock him by participating in paganism and risk coming under the curse of the covenant that we read about in the next chapter. Right? It's often we, we, we stop in the, when we read the institution of the supper uh, before this passage, but uh, we'll read it now. Chapter 11, verses 27 and following. Whoever, the, <clears throat> whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, would not, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not, come, uh, not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. We must examine ourselves, brothers and sisters. We're not, we must think through all of those idols mentioned earlier. And think through, take, take an, an inventory of our hearts. We must think through them and our involvement and our enslavement to them. When our hearts are broken by our failure to our Lord, what are we to do? What are we to do? What is left for us to do, brothers and sisters? Do we run from the church? Do we run from the supper? Do we run from Jesus? No. We flee again to Christ our Lord. We flee again to Him. And again we flee to His table. And there again He feeds you of Himself. And He feeds you in His Word. And He tells you who you are. He tells you who He is. And that He loves you. He will never forsake you. And through His means He grows you to put to death your sins. And to throw off more and more your idols. And to more and more flee to Him for every moment in every aspect of your life. That is his promise. And that's what he does. That's what he does for us, brothers and sisters. And never forget, dear Christian, life here is very short. It's very short. And here will we have much pain. But despite that brevity of life, and despite that painful life, we must trust him that he's overcome the world. And that being true, may you go back from this place as you descend back down into the world until you come again. May you go back down and may you share the love and the grace and life that awaits those who come to God, to Jesus, for forgiveness and for life. Amen.